So this morning's Bible reading comes from the book of Isaiah. We're reading from chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin. The foreigner's stronghold a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honour you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. But Moab will be trampled in their land, as straw is trampled down in the manure. They will stretch out their hands in it, as swimmers stretch out their hands to swim. God will bring down their pride, despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Neil. Good morning. Uh, For those who don't know me, my name's Jordan. I am just a member here these days. (laughs) But uh, it's always good to be up here. Well, at least it's good for me. If it's good for you, I'll leave that for your uh, judgment. Uh, Do keep your Bibles open there at Isaiah 25. That's where we'll be looking today. What do you need to have a good party? I don't necessarily know the answer to that question myself, which may come as a shock to you. You may be sitting there thinking, what, Jordan, you're such a party animal. How can you not know these things? Uh, But I don't. So I looked for some answers online and uh, some experts on the internet suggested 
Uh, you might need things like plates, uh, decorations, uh, food and drinks, all very uh, basic stuff, I suppose. Uh, but then some others went a bit further. Uh, what about an enticing invitation, an interesting group of guests, an element of surprise? All good suggestions, I think. But I want to put it to you, party novice that I am, that the most important thing to have for a good party is a reason. You need to have a reason to happily come together, right? How can you have a celebration if there's nothing to celebrate? How can you shout with joy if there's nothing to be joyful for? Sure, all those other things are are good, but they revolve around the reason for being there in the first place. So, uh, in this uh, chapter of the book of Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah is giving us all something to celebrate, or at least something he wants us to celebrate with him. He's giving us a reason to be glad and rejoice. And he's doing it by pointing our eyes to God, by showing us what God has done, and more importantly, what he will do. So, he starts, verse 1, by laying it out for us. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name, for in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things Things planned long ago. Now, the first five verses here are, you'll notice, sort of directed towards uh, God. There are a prayer from Isaiah of, of praise and thanksgiving to God because God has faithfully, continually done wonderful things in accordance with his grand plan for everything, for all creation. Uh, Other translations uh, say instead of long ago, they might say something like from of old. That is from ancient days, from the beginning, from before the beginning even. God has had it all worked out since before he created the world. And so, Isaiah says, he is worth exalting and praising because in his grand plan, he has not stopped doing wonderful things. So what are these wonderful things? Verse 2. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore strong peoples will honour you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall, and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners. As heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. For a bit of context here, uh, Isaiah prophesied in the southern kingdom of Judah, as opposed to the northern kingdom of Israel. 
And uh, during his lifetime, and this is recorded later on in uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, if you want to have a look, around chapter 38, uh, the kingdom came under attack from the Assyrian Empire, which was renowned for not just their military might, but also their ruthless cruelty. So when Isaiah is talking about uh, what these foreigners are doing, he's thinking of the Assyrian Empire. And when the Assyrians laid siege to Jerusalem, the king at the time, Hezekiah, turned to God to rescue his people. And God wiped out the Assyrian army, forcing uh, their king to flee back to his palace. Now, I wasn't alive uh, when the Berlin Wall came down, but from what I can tell, from what I've seen on video and from people's sort of recollections of it, when that wall fell down, it resulted in a huge celebration. And the people there were filled with joy. To see an evil empire crumble, to be part of uh, the bringing down of a, a seemingly unconquerable, unstoppable force. What an amazing feeling. What a reason to to celebrate and rejoice. And I think that time gives us some indication of what it must have been like for Judah to see the Assyrian Empire run home with their tails between their legs. Just as uh, their ancestors had seen other mighty and powerful uh, threats to Israel fall away. And Isaiah is saying, that's the kind of thing God does. Israel isn't bringing down the strong. This is God. It's God alone. Nowhere here do we see Israel being given credit for anything that's going on. Only God is given the glory because God is the one who brings down the mighty, who brings down the powerful, the strong, the ruthless, the uncaring. He is greater than the greatest of powers and rulers of nations. And this extends for us, not just to uh, the mighty uh, you know, rulers of nations today, but to the powerful people in our society who we see brought to justice for wrongdoing. Whether they be dodgy movie producers, corrupt public servants, maybe a boss in your own workplace. When we see righteous judgment take place, we are seeing God at work. He is the one causing justice to occur. He is ultimately the one bringing down the seemingly invincible. But he's also the one raising up the poor and the weak. See, God is more than just might and power. Isaiah tells us here that God is also a refuge for the poor and the needy and the distressed. A shelter from the evils that they face. If God is the one that has planned out everything... And he is faithful and he is just. Then trusting in him to provide uh, for us when we are needy. To protect us when we are weak. 
Well, that's a cause for rejoicing because he'll be there for us. And so some might say to that, well, you know, that's really good to hear. Uh, it's, you know, it's good that you've got something uh, to believe in to get you through another day. But if that's all this is, if God is just something that we believe in to make us feel better, that's just therapeutic. It's just positive thinking and slapping a different name onto optimism without cause. There's no reason to rejoice in that. Because it would mean that the moment we stop thinking that way, the moment we stop being positive, well then God would cease to exist. It would make our whole worldview, our whole understanding of ourselves and the world we live in, fraudulent. A lie. And that's a far cry from what Isaiah is telling us, isn't it? Isaiah seems to think that there is good reason to believe that God isn't just real rather than a feel-good piece of positive thinking, but that he is just and that he is the one doing these things, that he disarms the strong and cares for the weak. Now, we could go through uh, all of the historical occasions where God shows Israel his faithfulness and his justice, uh, where he's shown that he's the one that delivers judgment on wickedness and shelter to the needy, uh, maybe times like the Exodus or throughout the book of Judges. And those are, by all means, reasons for us to rejoice and be glad, uh, just as they were for Israel. You know, isn't it amazing that God would choose to rescue his people, that he would choose to protect them, like a good father caring for his children. And isn't it great that we can read about that and uh, see what God uh, has been doing across thousands of years? But do you notice how most of this chapter isn't looking backwards? It looks forwards. Isaiah doesn't go through all of God's demonstrations of his faithfulness historically, like we see in, uh, for example, Psalm 106. No, he sets our eyes forwards to a time when justice will prevail fully. An ending, as it were, to this life as we know it, when everything will change. Over and over, we're told here about what God will do. Uh, in chapter 24, the previous chapter of Isaiah, uh, that's the beginning of uh, this section of this book, which is all about a coming judgment for the whole world. Chapter 24 details what this judgment will be like, what it will look like. And then we have our passage today where Isaiah praises God for the fact that that judgment will come. For the fact that justice will be done fully, completely, once and for all. Look at verses 10 to 12. The hand of the Lord 
will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled in their land as straw is trampled down in the manure. They will stretch out their hands in it as swimmers stretch out their hands to swim. God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground to the very dust. He will, he will, he will, he will. These things are coming and they are certain to happen. But how can we know that? How can we today trust that God is going to bring about what Isaiah is absolutely sure will happen? Well, as is so often the case in Isaiah, he is pointing forward to Jesus. He's pointing forward to Jesus who was a refuge for the poor and the needy and the downtrodden during his ministry. Jesus, who, during his ministry, knew the hearts of those he talked to, their intentions for good or for evil. Jesus, who chose to die on a cross so that we could be offered eternal mercy for our sins. And ultimately, Jesus, who will return to judge with eternal justice. Jesus is the reason to believe that God is just. In John chapter 5, Jesus uh, talks about how he alone has been given the authority to judge the whole earth and that the day is coming when he will do so. In Matthew 25, from Uh, Verse 31, Jesus talks about what his return will look like. How he will come back in glory and will then judge the whole earth. Separating those who have trusted in him from those who have rejected him. And what we see here in Isaiah 25, uh, verse 10 about Moab, Moab, what we're seeing is that separation, that judgment on those who have turned away from God. Uh, Moab was uh, the nation that was perhaps the most consistent and unrelenting uh, enemy of God's people, of Israel. And so their appearance here on the Day of Judgment, uh, long after the Moabite nation has disappeared, uh, is metaphorical. It's a way of representing all the enemies of God all those who have rejected his rule and continue to rebel against the Creator. And so we're seeing here how God will judge those who have fought against him and against his good and just rule. We've recently uh, finished a series on creation and we saw there how God created the world and everything in it. And when he finished his work of creation, he saw that it was very good. Everything was as it should be. Everything was great. And then we made a mistake. We thought we knew better than God and rebelled. And ever since our rebellion against God's good rule, 
we have had a world of injustice, a world of pain, a world full of evils, of the strong dominating the weak, of the needy crying out for shelter and help, a world where our selfish and rebellious desires cause us to act unjustly towards our fellow humans. And so for us to believe that justice will come, to want to see it done, to want to believe that truth and righteousness will prevail in the end, is really simply to believe in Jesus. To believe that he is God, that he is a just judge, to believe that we, because of our selfishness, our rebellion, deserve to be judged and condemned, and yet to also believe that through Jesus' death on the cross, that he has taken our deserved judgment on himself, so that he can spare us when he returns to judge the world. And I'd say that alone is cause to rejoice, to be glad that justice will reign. Isn't it a relief to know that there will be true justice? Isn't it good to know that every injustice ever committed across all of human history will be dealt with by the only judge who could ever take on such a task? Who but God could know the deeds of everyone who has ever lived? Who but God could know what injustices have been committed across all human history? And why? And judge them accordingly. Who but God could know right from wrong in every circumstance? And who but God could offer eternal mercy from deserved punishment? But that alone isn't Isaiah's sole cause for rejoicing. He doesn't stop there, does he? In between this kind of bun of justice we've got in this passage, we get a juicy burger, so to speak, of salvation, of life, of restoration. From verse 6, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wine. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. You see, since Eden, since uh, the fall, we don't just live in a world of injustice. We live in a world of death. We live in a world of sickness and decay. I don't think there's a single one of us who could have missed that fact in the last 18 months. In fact, we might be pretty sick 
of being reminded every day, every hour, every minute, every discussion you have, every news bulletin you hear, that people are getting sick and dying. Because that's the way it's been for millennia. We know that that's just the way it is. No matter how much we may want it to be otherwise. This world doesn't just need justice. This is a world in need of restoration. This is a world in need of death dying. Of sickness being eradicated. Of decay being reversed. This is a world that needs to be made like new. To return to what it was like when God first created it. Before the fall. And so as Isaiah looks forward to Jesus, to his return to judge the world, he's ultimately also looking forward to the restoration of the world that will come with his return. This isn't just about judging wickedness and that's it. No, there's a remarkable offer here of salvation for those who trust in God. This is an offer for all people to live eternally in a world that is perfectly restored, a world that is as it should be. And in fact, that is better than the Garden of Eden because of all the people that are in it and the city that we will live in and where we will have this great feast together with God. Like the Garden of Eden uh, would have been, this place is on a mountaintop uh, in context, likely Mount Zion, Jerusalem. And the language that Isaiah uses here is one we see again in Revelation. When we learn more of what this banquet will be like, of what this restoration of the world will involve. In Isaiah 25, we're told that everything about God and the world will be made clear to us, that death will disappear from us, that God will wipe away our tears and our sin, our rebellion, the things that make us worthy of judgment and condemnation will not be held against us. And then in Revelation chapter 21, after Jesus has judged the world in chapter 20, There appears a new heaven and a new earth, for this earth will pass away. A new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, prepared by God, just like this banquet. And God will dwell with mankind forever. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. I hope you can see the parallel. It is Jesus who enables Isaiah's vision of the future. It is Jesus who enables us to fully see God for who he is. His immense love and mercy and grace and justice. It is Jesus who has swallowed up death, who has made death temporary through his resurrection so that we can have it as well by believing in him. 
It is Jesus who causes our disgrace, our sinful rebellion, to be washed away through his death in our place. And so it is Jesus who will restore everything back to how it should be. How it was always meant to be. To make it like new. You see, it's one thing for justice to be done. If someone kills your spouse or child or best friend and they're caught and found guilty and sentenced and punished accordingly, I think we would say that is good. Justice has been served. Hooray. It wouldn't do for them to get away with murder. That's why we have that phrase uh, for anyone who escapes justice for something wrong they've done. But that justice isn't really enough, is it? It doesn't fulfil what we really want. Our loved one is still gone. Justice doesn't bring them back. That's why I think so many people would instead turn to vengeance, to getting revenge on the person who has wronged them. But that doesn't fulfil our desires really either. Left to run unchecked, vengeance can pile up injustice upon injustice, generation after generation. Now what we really want is not to take away from others what has been taken from us. What we want is to get back what we've lost. We want restoration. We want things to be as they should be. We want goodness. We want life. We want our partner back, our relationships back, our health back. We want everything that's been broken to be fixed and made like new. To be saved from a horrible fate and delivered into a good life forever. Of course we want justice because justice is good. But we want more than that. We want a cause to celebrate We want to be filled to the brim with joy. And what does Isaiah say causes that? Verse 9. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Just as only God could be the one to judge the whole world, knowing every deed and every heart of everyone who has ever lived, so too only God could be the one to restore the world. As the one who has created it, who formed all of creation by his word, as the one who knows and is goodness and is faithful to the very end, If we want a just world, we must trust in God to deliver it. And if we want a restored world, we must trust that God is on the way to let us enter into it. For us to believe that restoration will come, that salvation for everything is on the way, is simply, again, to believe in Jesus. To believe that he is God that he is our Lord and Saviour, 
to believe that we were made by him for life, for eternal life, and that through his resurrection on the third day after his crucifixion, we are given that eternal life, to live by his side in a restored, renewed, perfected world. If we believe that, if we believe in Jesus, then on the day he returns, you and I will be sitting at the banquet table, taking part in an eternal party. Jesus himself there with us. And when we see him, we'll be able to turn to each other and say, giddy with excitement, look, it's our creator, it's the just judge, it's the one who wiped away our sins through his death on the cross. It's the one who has restored the world to how it's meant to be so that we can enjoy it with him and with each other for all eternity. We'll be able to say, look, this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with gladness and rejoicing. We sing your praises, Lord, because you are our salvation. Lord, we ask that you would help us to remember in times of trial, tribulation, uh, when we see injustice go seemingly unpunished, Help us to remember, Lord, that you are the just judge. That one day you will judge the whole earth and nothing will escape your sight. Lord, help us to call upon you as our refuge, to take uh, comfort in you as uh, the all-powerful creator who loves us. And Lord, thank you for sending Jesus to be our salvation. Lord, we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on him, that you would help us to remember uh, every day to trust in you because we know that you have given us salvation for our wrong. We know that we deserve judgment for our rebellion but that through Jesus you have offered us mercy and eternal life so that we can rejoice for the salvation you've given us. Lord, help us to be immensely glad for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.